Welcome to Wonks and War Rooms, where political communication theory meets on-the-ground strategy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Dubois, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Ottawa. My pronouns are she, her. Today, I'm recording from the unceded and traditional territory of the Algonquin people. In today's episode, we're talking with Rachel Aiello about technological affordances. Rachel, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm Rachel Aiello, and I am the online politics producer at ctvnews.ca, and I've been a member of the Parliamentary Press Gallery since 2014. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to talk to you. We're talking about affordances today. uh, And I thought that you would be particularly interesting to talk to about affordances because you have dealt with so many different channels of communication and forms of information. So quick rundown on what affordances actually is. In academic literature, the idea of affordances is actually used in a bunch of different disciplines. What it boils down to is affordances are the things that objects allow you to do. And so we're going to talk today about technological affordances, which are essentially the technological features that enable or constrain different kinds of actions, right? So we might have something like WhatsApp allowing us to auto-delete messages or Twitter constraining how many characters we can use, uh, a news website allowing or disallowing comments on an article. Those are all different kinds of affordances. Cool. Is that making sense so far? So far, so good. Excellent. Okay, so... Uh, there is like a bunch to unpack with affordances, like any academic theory, but uh, let's kind of ease our way in. I'm wondering if you see any connections with this idea of affordances with the kind of news production and sharing work that you do. Absolutely. So I think in a couple ways, one of them for me, I mainly do online reporting. So we are uh, watching what people say online, but also using our website to put out content. Um, but I think I noticed this the most on the election campaign trail that what I was able to do was kind of constrained to my phone in a lot of situations. I was using it in multiple different ways. So it was uh, my main channel of communication to my desk using email and Slack to message my team to figure out what's going on. Um, but also being able to use it as a recorder and recording what's happening in press conferences. I'm also holding it in my hand with notes for questions to ask at press conferences. Uh, So it's kind of using all of these different elements of it. And basically my entire reporting and job was connected to the device in my hand. That's such a useful example. And it's so true. We have these devices that afford us so many different things. They can do so many different things. And that has changed as the technology has evolved too, right? Like a a phone used to be, it affords you calling someone. (laughs) Right. And so now I can uh, take a video or a photo of the press conference, immediately tweet that out. I can then go into Safari, grab the link and share that. Um, Now there's an app to record. So you can record your transcripts on there and grab through, listen to it, stick in your headphones and you're on a call or you're listening to that. So uh, I think the only limitation in the phone for me and my job is the like publishing to our website. That stuff still is laptop uh, (laughs) required. Um, But in pretty much every way, uh, my phone can be basically my main reporting tool now. Um, that isn't usually the case most days I'm sitting at a desk with a computer um, but absolutely when you're on the hill um, or when you're on the road traveling election campaigns or you know you're out covering a story uh, there's a lot that you can do just by the thing in your hand or in your pocket yeah that is pretty cool and it has definitely changed the way 
you know, somebody preps to go out in the field. Absolutely. So battery packs are necessary, <laughs> um, but it is also the ups and downsides of it is um, you can get things out really quickly um, because you have that ability right in your hand. But it is also that like feeding the news cycle necessity of um, needing to, you know, people know you have that ability. And then so there's that that pressure sometimes to get things out quickly or or to be able to in the moment be feeding things. And I think there is a merit and a value in that. But there's also those times where you do need to kind of sit down, take a breath and look at the whole picture. Right. Yeah. Because it creates this expectation. We've talked about, um, you know, in other podcasts, like the what a news cycle actually looks like and how technology might be affecting that. Right. And moving from, OK, well, there's like a 24 hour cycle and there's like daily deadlines for things. And like that's not a thing anymore because we've got these tools that afford you the ability to do things on the go and quickly and like edit stuff really fast. Yeah. And it's not even just us, the journalists you know, in the election campaign to continue that example that have this ability the political people who we are covering as well also do so they have the affordance or the ability to get out their own messages that way or conduct their own um, media promotions social media all of those things on their own Uh, obviously I think there's a different role for the content you would then get and see from us on the road Um, but they do have the ability to then take that and do it themselves one of the best examples I saw of this was um you know, all of the leaders use social media in different ways during the campaign. Um, obviously, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP were big on TikTok, and he was pulling his phone out at every stop to, you know, promote his events. Um, but Justin Trudeau was doing, I was out with them the first week, and I noticed after events, he would go out or like off to the side with whatever um, candidates or people who were kind of standing behind him and did their own version of the announcement that they just carried on national television uh, before Instagram. And so it was like, I'm here with, you know, Doug Eilfson at this grocery store in Manitoba. Um, and we just made this announcement about this. And he's able to then share the message of what the announcement was, which is usually obviously something smaller and rarely, depending on the day, was the actual headline right. or what we would get out. Um, so there is that ability for them to use their phones and get that stuff. I'm sure that went through layers of editing before it actually got posted. Um, but he was recording it himself on his phone, selfie style. Right. Yeah. And it gives that ability to do it right there on the road. And it gives that ability to like, create a sense of of personal connection, which authenticity. Is, yep. It, totally core to a lot of comm strategy. We did an episode in our first season of Wonks and War Rooms on authenticity with Kevin Parent of Ottawa Public Health. And and from crisis comms to election comms to whatever it is, that authenticity is a core goal right now. And I think one of the big challenge, or changes that the pandemic brought was uh, our audiences are a bit more um, forgiving or generous when it comes to the quality, not in the factual or the like, you know, uh, knowledge of it. But if your video is a little shaky or, you know, it got cut off weirdly or something like that, it's because the nature of or your cat jumps into your screen at Zoom. <laughs> like these are just the limits of the technology that we have been using in the pandemic or out on the road or whatever situation. So I think audiences have become a bit more desensitized and less requiring like the complete TV studio setup and the polished, edited. There's a lot more native video going around that people are just more used to seeing and they don't always think that a news piece or a news item or... Uh, what you're getting from me on Twitter or Instagram or something like that isn't necessarily 
what's going to go to air right or be in my story it's different perspectives on things and so I think that's also a message for reading a bunch of different places or like getting your news from more than one spot um but it absolutely having the ability to use your phone or other technology is kind of we can do it our audience can do it and there's this new layer of um relatability yeah yeah I think you're right and it's interesting because when we're thinking about affordances originally the theory was like well we're talking about what the technology offers and it was often thought of in terms of like what a tech company building a piece of technology was intending to create and intending you to use but in reality affordances are like whatever the technology enables you to do and it's usually in a social context right and so this idea of creating this relatability and this kind of personal connection that you can do via having a weird cutoff video that's a little shaky like that was probably not what people who created Instagram lives were going for right in the same way that like the Facebook we've ended up with was not the Facebook I think they probably started out intending to build maybe but uh and I think that's just the nature of technology and people pushing the boundaries and trying to figure out what else can be done with things and like for sure using your phone as a reporting tool has not necessarily been new but I am curious to see where things go from here like you can use it to go live and do um hits or or like Facebook things or um uh, FaceTime things like that so there was some of that we were seeing in the campaign trail as well it was what would before be you have to set up a tripod you have to dial into our system and do all of that it's just like (laughs) do you have headphones is your battery charge and are you at a decent angle yeah uh, and let's just talk to you yeah and, and like so, maybe don't have sun right behind you ideally <laughs> but like some days you know if the news is big enough we'll get you on whatever way it looks yeah yeah I think that's that's a really interesting shift because we often think about the kind of value of of news as being professional and expert and and trained and it is still all of those things yeah. but we don't have the polish requirement the same way we might have before. Yeah, and I think it's definitely a challenge for reporters to keep in mind the content of it because it's very easy when you're on the fly and there is a value in being casual sometimes, but like at the end of the day, our job is to be factual, accurate, fair, balanced. Mm -hmm. And so some reporters have an ease of you know, picking up the phone and doing six things at once and not everyone is that way. And that doesn't make you any better or less good of a reporter. It's just a different style, Uh, but it is absolutely a, a delicate dance and I know journalism schools are probably having to grapple with the like okay we need to teach you the basics right like uh cp style and grammar um but also you need to be able to use your phone do video do this or that because that's going to be the expectation when you go into the field that you have the ability to juggle those things and and still do the core part of your job which is reporting what's happening right and so reporting what's happening then like it requires all kinds of digital literacy you need these skills and understanding of how these tools work technically but also how people are going to interact with them and uh, what people will trust what people won't trust i want to go back to you mentioned kind of thinking about the content and so one of the other ways that affordances might play in is in the way content needs to be shaped to play on these different kinds of platforms. And, you know, I know that you do stuff, obviously, for CTV online, but also podcasting and on television and across social media. Newsletter. Yeah, the newsletter. So do you you think about creating your content differently for those different outlets or not outlets, but platforms? Platforms. Uh, 
you have to in some ways like again at the end of the day the story is the story um but we yeah you do have to think about the audience and how where they are reading it is going to change things so uh in the case of the newsletter i know that most folks are probably opening it up on their phone um so i try to keep that it's called capital dispatch during the election it was daily and we called it election dispatch and it was basically a recap of what happened that day on the campaign trail uh, and so instead of presenting you with like, a full like thousand word story, it would be briefer with links back. So if you did want to read more into it, you would be able to do that. Um, and so that whole experience is thought about in the way that people are reading it, whether it's they've opened it up on their computer or not. It's an email format. So you don't have that long. I try to keep it tight. Yeah. Uh, so in that sense, it's definitely like the one line kind of this is what you need to know, follow through. Uh, on our website, the one of the joys of being a mainly online reporter is I don't have to worry about like time limits, um, word counts in the sense of at a certain point folks stop scrolling. So you have to kind of hit your sweet spot and keeping them engaged. Uh, but you do have the ability to go longer. It's not like my TV colleagues who have like, okay, you've got a minute 30. So you have to (laughs) fill a minute and 30 seconds. So the way that they draft their stories is different in the sense of you have to write to pictures you have to think about how how are we going to put video or visuals on the screen that match what i'm saying and if i'm talking about a like dull policy thing on the hill sometimes you don't really have it's like how many parliament hill stocks can we put (laughs) on the screen and will they actually be useful for the person viewing it right and because the other part of this is so much of the news now people are watching on mute um so you have to have that factor as well if conveying the story if they're not listening to it. So even television, there's an assumption that people watch on mute? In certain situations, definitely on uh, like a daily news channel, mm-hmm. I think, you you know, you see in airports or barbershops, that kind of stuff. So the banners and the things you see across the bottom are deliberate in the sense of conveying the story. And sometimes when the video is like, you kind of have to put it into that context. Right. Um, national news is a different story. Obviously, that's like programming TV, people are sitting down and, and watching. But even in a lot of our social media now, we're keeping in mind the mute factor. When you know, you're scrolling through Instagram or, or Twitter, you want to watch the video, but you're at work or you're somewhere where you can't just let the music play or the audio. So we are putting on uh, captions on our videos and trying to think about, yeah. So a roundabout answer to your question is we absolutely do think about the platform in which people are accessing the media. Uh, It doesn't necessarily change the content, but it probably changes the structure. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I love the mute example because that's a very clear way we we can think about affordances, right? Like both television and our phones, wherever on the internet, allow for the audio, but they also allow people to turn the audio off. And so you have to plan for that. You have to plan for the choices that these people might be making when they're presented with these yeah. are the options. Same way that you can like put six headlines on a front page. And if nobody reads past the headline, we can't do much about that. Uh, they have the ability to click through and yeah. read it. And uh, we hope that they always do, but that's not always the case. So you do, there are always those, you know, thoughts in the editorial process of like, the headline is the headline for a reason because you're conveying the news as quickly because you know that not everyone's going to go all the way through the piece. And that's why generally news stories are structured the way they are all the good stuff at the top and the like the more you know background and details as you go down right exactly get those kind of top level things make sure that the stuff that people are less likely to opt out of gets them the core info they need yeah exactly 
Cool. So one of the reasons that I find the idea of affordance is so useful is because it helps us deal with this thing called technological determinism. Have you heard of technological determinism? I mean, it sounds familiar, but I... I couldn't tell you exactly what it means, so I'm looking forward to you explaining it. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So technological determinism is basically this idea that the technology determines how we're going to interact with it and what the outcomes are going to be. So an example here is when the internet was first created, a bunch of people truly believed it was necessarily democratizing because of the structure of the internet, because of the decentralized nature of how it was created. It was like, look, everybody's going to have equal access. Everybody's going to be able to give their opinions. We're going to have like true democracy because of this technology. And free speech. And free speech. Exactly. Yeah. And like, obviously that's worked perfectly, (laughs) right? Like it's not necessarily a democratizing tool. It's true that you can use the internet to serve pro-democratic like desires, but also anti-democratic, right? Like there's there's ways to use it however you want. So the technological determinists would say, you know, because the technology is here, because we got Facebook, we were always destined to end up wanting to see really short videos that we could turn the sound on or off. And we want we were always destined to end up with captions. And like that was predetermined by us. We are just humans who ended up having to follow the the will of the technology. Right. Um, On the flip side, there's the idea of like social constructivism, where actually we all use tools just however we want. And it's all about the social context of them, which also is not entirely true. We can go back to like the number of characters you're allowed in a tweet. Right, yeah, or algorithms serving you up deliberate things for deliberate reasons. Exactly, exactly. So the idea of affordances kind of allows us a middle ground between those, right? We're able to say, yeah, the technology shapes the choices that we have, but also we are making choices and there's social context to those choices that help us figure out what the actual impact of technology is going to be, what the actual impact on how we get and share information is going to be. Right. So the user on the phone in that example, you know, you could download multiple news apps and check them regularly. You could download Twitter, you know, or you could not. And you could be a radio news listener or uh, watch it on TV at night. It's you have the ability to become wildly educated on every news possible at any moment of the day. Or you could choose to not or you could choose to pick one and only listen to watch or read that one. Um, So that is an interesting general life societal conundrum (laughs) of my business, I guess you could say, in in the technology of journalism. Yeah. And I think that it it connects back to this idea of digital and media literacy too, in a lot of the ways that you were just describing. Like you could choose a bunch of different sources, lateral reading. You could choose to click all of the links that you have in your newsletter to read the rest of the stories. You could choose not to do those things. You could choose to go and use a search engine to verify something that you saw in a TikTok by somebody who like you think is really funny, but you don't actually know if they are a trustworthy source of information. Uh, And having all of these options available can also get a little bit overwhelming because you're like, I am afforded all of this access and now what do I do? Or I only have a few minutes in the day to follow the news. And the way that it was presented in this like Instagram picture that was like really artfully designed is the only facts I need. And that's not always the case, but. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so that there is like a really good example of how the social context then impacts the affordances we have because 
we are making these choices based on how much time we've got and how pretty the Instagram picture was. And and it all starts to kind of layer on top of each other. It makes it really difficult then, obviously, to deal with a problem like, how do we deal with disinformation? Because like, yeah. it's multifaceted. <laughs> well, and also in the sense of the conversation, I think a lot of people are having right now about uh, access to journalists online and the hate and attacks um, that journalists receive. It's like you need to be at a certain degree on social media for your job. Um, but more and more, we're seeing that that is also the place where um, the audience is coming back to you in ways that are uh, it, not positive would be like the biggest understatement of the day. <laughs> um, but that is also a factor in our jobs. Now you have to, you know, keep in mind or consider the feedback element and the the hate and the you know, even if it's just someone didn't like your article or it's to the extreme of inciting violence and, and a whole lot of nastiness. Uh, but that is the, I would say, probably downside to having this authentic posting ability all the time. It's they're also able to get back at, you know, respond to you or get in your face in that way. Yeah. Uh, that is a factor that we didn't necessarily have even that long ago. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because that example there is another way kind of in to understand the role of tech companies, right? Because let's take Twitter, for example. Uh, Twitter is the site of a lot of this kind of harassment and hate speech. And Twitter over the years has been trying to figure out, okay, like, how do we deal with this? Do we want to deal with it at all? And if we do, how do we deal with it? And they've created new affordances to try and test out, like, does this help, right? So, like, mute buttons and block functions and... You need to read the article before you tweet it or they at least ask you to, which for me, I laugh every time because I'm sharing my own article. It's like I wrote the thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But sure, I'll click on it. It's like, all right, yes, I want positive reinforcement for this. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And so building in those different kinds of affordances, which, you know, to varying degrees are successful or unsuccessful, but... It's an example of how these tech companies actually have a whole lot of power, right? Like I talked about technological determinism and generally we want to avoid being too technologically deterministic, but recognizing the power of a company like Twitter to determine whether or not its users are going to have any sort of recourse when they're being harassed, right. like that's that's an important, powerful role. Yeah. yeah. Well, and they also have played a role in taking people away, right? Like deplatforming people or having them be removed and not have that ability. So it isn't entirely a like democratic choice. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we are getting close to time, but I wanted to touch on two other types of affordances that are talked about in the academic literature. One is the idea of imagined affordances, which is essentially when the users start to perceive affordances, whether they're there or not. And you start to kind of imagine what a tool can be used for and why it should be used and in what context it should be used. And so sometimes as users, we actually kind of constrain ourselves, even if the technology hasn't done that, right? Uh, and sometimes we imagine that a tool is going to be able to do something that actually it can't do, right? Like, you know, how many times do you say, well, like, Google probably knows the answer to that. And then when you actually go searching for the information, you're like, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's not an all-knowing machine. Yeah. The other kind of affordance that sometimes gets talked about are hidden affordances, where they might be there, but we don't even know it's happening. So 
an example is Facebook's news feed. Uh, you can actually go and like toggle how much of different kinds of information you want to show up, but most people aren't aware of it. Uh, and then beyond that, there's also the fact that Facebook's algorithm feeds to you information that you're likely to like and share and click on. And, and we might not know about that either, right? Like those kinds of things, which then impact your news diet pretty substantially if you're using social media, uh, are just kind of under the radar. Yeah, I, and I guess that is I, to the first point about perceived or imagined affordances. It would be, I think, when you th- when you don't realize that you're in a new silo or in a in a bubble, and you're only getting news from one perspective, or you think that because you've seen a headline from a news outlet on this that they haven't also done a story on why, mm-hmm. and so there is that requirement for you to go and do that checking. Um, but I, one of the more I think tricky ones is figuring out algorithms in the sense of how even as us as journalists we are news consumers and making sure that we continue to get a a broad range of things um, but also keeping an eye on the people we are meant to cover Uh, so you do have to kind of structure like I make deliberate choices I make lists of MPs for example so I can go and know that like Twitter lists kind of thing yeah and so you can keep track of certain groups that way Um, otherwise your main feed can probably get fairly echo chambery depending on what you're reporting on or following. Uh, And that is, again, one of those things that, like, because my job is core in media literacy, that's a thing I'm aware of, but absolutely, like, every user probably doesn't think through in that way, and they just assume that they've, the people they follow are going to give them all the news that they need to know, and that's not always the case. There's, you know, tons of stories that not everyone is covering or that are, like, in an ethnic media market that is, like, a major story there that we had a blind spot to, or, you know, there are so many examples of... Um, the ability of technology for that news to get out there, but there are still limitations in that there isn't just a fire hose of information coming in um, that we get to pick and choose from. It's deliberate and, you know, turning on the right taps, I guess you could say. Yeah, turning on the right taps, I think, is a really good metaphor to use because uh, there is just this flood of information all of the time. And so recognizing that you're only getting it from one tap and then figuring out which other ones you might want to turn on, like that's that's digital and media literacy. Well, and also even in our job of covering politicians, having to keep in mind what taps they are and aren't turning on and, and figuring out when they're using new technologies or uh, you know, using phone banking or telecalling, teleconferences, like how are they using these things? Who are they speaking to and what new technologies or new kind of evolutions in political campaigning or messaging or all of that are they now exploring that we have to be literate in as well? Yeah, yeah. And learning how those tools technically work, but then also how these political figures are choosing to use them, right? Like you talked about Jagmeet Singh's TikTok and like one part of the literacy needed around that is understanding how TikTok works. And then there's a whole other layer of, but how is he as a politician using it? Because he as a politician is going to use it differently from, um, you know, me filming my cat and putting TikToks <laughs> of my cat. I mean, some days they would be probably fairly similar. Well, <laughs> um, and I think the broader conversation then is we had a lot of attention on, okay, he's using social media in this way or Trudeau's using social media in this way or Erin O'Toole is doing these um uh, teletown hall kind of style things and the broader bigger conversation is about how effective those were in the end mm-hmm. um obviously the way that you're using technology has become a key part of campaigning especially in a pandemic but uh it's not predetermined for people's votes like you don't just think because you've got a bunch of followers on tiktok or you reached you know 
tens of thousands of callers in BC one night that like there is so much more to creating the democracy and parliament and all of those things than just what technology allows. Like at the end of the day, you are still like pencil to paper, <laughs> yeah. putting your vote down and it's based on people at your door getting you out to vote or conversations with other people face to face. It's um, it's an interesting thought of how technology has become kind of all consuming, mm-hmm. but there still is that required to kind of pull your head out of it and realize that um, you can put it down. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and we spend a lot of time thinking kind of at the micro level and individual level, but when you get out to a macro stage like yeah well and it's been so necessary in the last year and a bit of like needing to require or you know having to talk to everyone virtually mm-hmm. zooms and and all of that but more and more now hopefully as things <laughs> get better uh we're able to have face-to-face conversations and even just thinking to the last uh, group of parliamentarians on the hill i i don't think i had the same kind of recognition of them all because for a good chunk of their time they were a face on a Zoom screen in the virtual House of Commons, which is another technology that has now been allowed in this hybrid sitting. I won't get into. Um, and that's a whole other conversation about democracy and doing it from your office at home instead of in the chamber. Um, but hopefully now being able to more and more get into a place where we can have the, you know, you walk down the hall and have someone like, how's your day been? And you just have that. It's a different dynamic. And I'm sure that everyone's experiencing that in their own professional lives in different ways. Uh, but it is, I guess, a good reminder of it's really easy to put your head down and kind of get into the tunnel. Um, but there is a lot more to our conversations and society and our lives than just uh, what came through a screen. Yeah. Yeah. And I I love what you've just said, too, because it's like, yeah, there were affordances to like face-to-face conversations and physical co-presence as we say in the academic literature um like like those were affordances too they're not technological but they were meaningful in the way that we interacted and and as we can do them more it shifts the need for different technology and whatnot anyway i think we could go on for ages but we don't have time (laughs) so instead i'm going to end it with the uh, classic pop quiz all right. Can you tell me what affordances are? So affordances are uh, things that allow you to do other things. So it's a tool or a device or a mechanism uh, that would permit you or not permit you yeah. to engage in a way. So in technology, I think the example of your phone or a platform would be an affordance. Yeah. Very close. I would say like your phone has affordances. Okay. Yeah. So it's like the phone... The phone is the object, but then it affords you to do all kinds of things from like calling somebody to texting to recording to posting on Instagram, whatever it is. Right. Awesome. Thank you. All right. That was our episode on technological affordances. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about affordances or any of the other theories and concepts we talked about today, you can check the show notes or head over to paulcomtech.ca. This special season on media and digital literacy is funded in part through a connection grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Digital Citizen Initiative.